Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Three, Risk Analysis. Chapter 22. A thin man with red hair sat on the corporate side of the table a few seats down from me. Noticing him for the first time, I realized I'd been wrong. I actually did know someone in the room, or at least I'd seen him once before. He'd been standing next to VP Bailey while she gave us a hostile motivational speech back on Mylag Vernier. The guy hadn't spoken a word then, but he cleared his throat now and raised a finger. He wore a perfectly tailored suit in a muted blue with some greenish threads that showed up my own off-the-rack choice as the cheap, last-minute acquisition it was. Admiral Dussain gestured to him. If I may, with everything that's come to light about this operation, my colleagues and I have come to believe that Mr. DeSantos has not engaged in any kind of industrial spying. He did lie on his application and resume regarding how he arrived in 21611B. However, his extraordinary circumstances rather allows for that. He was unable to legally reveal himself as a United Humanity subcontractor due to the nature of the assignment. And the hostilities shown to his ship made him fear for his safety if the truth were to come out. Those hostilities were answered by this man, which led directly to the destruction of one of your ships, the Admiral put in with a critical, probing tone. We believe Mr. DeSantos acted within the confines of international law regarding the use of commercial armaments. His ship attempted to identify itself, but had communications jammed from the station. That was a direct violation of our own protocol. We're still investigating that part, but it implies that priorities were in place that were not those of the Montero group in any way. While the fight is entirely regrettable, the actions of Mr. DeSantos and his crewmates may well have prevented a significant security breach. Let me get this straight, the Admiral asked, sounding incredulous. There was a foreign operative ring working in high-level positions within the most classified research facility in your entire nation? Yes, the man replied, completely unfazed. The initial breach seems to have occurred during the contract period of a previous management team, all members of which are under investigation at this time. Frankly, 
we had no idea of this breakdown in security. Had things played out even slightly differently, our technology could be in the hands of radical extremists this very minute. He could have been jumping out specifically to meet those extremists. That was the other guy, Admiral, I put in, and she looked over at me like I'd been invisible and just reappeared out of thin air. You have my sworn testimony to that effect. I am the likely cause of the misjump. If we'd arrived at the original coordinates, I believe we'd have been met by enemy forces. He means competitive forces, of course, the thin guy injected. The Montero Group has no enemies. The Alliance of Interstellar Nations, on the other hand, does recognize certain rogue states as official enemies. Our employee risked harm in order to prevent a classified project from falling into the hands of one such. Admiral Dusane stared at the man, speechless for a long moment. Finally, and with shocked expression, she said, This man absconded with your technology and you're actually praising him? And you think he did us a favor? Brandon wasn't dead, but he might as well have been. Traumatic brain injury, extensive facial and cranial damage, and severe respiratory distress due to major sinus and esophageal problems. They were keeping his functions active and stable until he could be transferred to another location with top-end specialists, but he'd need extensive surgery and genetic reconstruction of neural, bone, and other tissues. It was too soon to say how much of his memory, personality, or humanity would be left. But if he was going to make it at all, it was going to be a long, steep climb. Either way, his service to the company was at an end. And, greatly appreciated, CPS-09 Admiral Mailbrot had written in a classified memo that CPS-08 Amanda Casselier cc'd to me. Oh, what an honor. Of course, I couldn't explain how I'd known about the transmission, so I said that Brandon had contacted me. My crewmates, up in Shady Lady, modified comm records to show that that's exactly how it happened. I managed a hurried call to them, wedged between TAC ops closing off the alley and team investigators arriving on the scene. I thumbnailed what happened, too stunned to be upset, really, and John and Stina started editing the course of events immediately. One call, lasting only 90 seconds, and perceived reality bent to my will. It was dreamlike. All of it. In the sense that nightmares are dreamlike. In the sense that shock and violence are dreamlike. That is to say, not at all. I guess he had a network of informants, I told the officers. He kept everyone compartmentalized. I never knew any of them, or if they even existed at all. But you say he mentioned other people sometimes. Obliquely, he'd refer to information he received. I don't know where he got last night's tip. Explaining my relationship to Layden was another matter entirely. As far as she could have known, I supplied, talking as if it just occurred to me at that moment, I was just employed in R&D, 
I mean, she asked what I did on station more than once, but I never thought much about it. I didn't answer her questions anyway. She must have known who I was from the start and where I was working. Why did you break up with her? Amanda Casellier asked, sitting in on one of the debrief sessions. Honestly? She annoyed me. We didn't agree on anything, and she appeared to feel the same way. In retrospect, I guess she manipulated the relationship so that I'd dump her. She must have realized I wasn't going to give up any information, and maybe I never had access to what she was after. What was she after? You tell me. You're the expert, or so you say. They ask the same questions again and again, often rephrasing things. I gave them the same answers. Then they brought in another crew and started over from the top. I was tired, but not that tired, and stuck to the story. Finally, some hatchet-faced guy arrived with a ghoulish-looking assistant who never spoke, and this pair implied that bad things could happen if I didn't cooperate fully. Their act was a little hammy, so I knew the straw grasping was nearly at an end. By late mid-shift the next day, team was finished with my interview, such as it was, and they told me to go get some rest. I was to report to 8 Casellier, who now had an office of her own on station, in ten hours' time. We had to make plans for the future, I was told. I shuddered at the we part of that statement more than anything else. I was righteously exhausted, but much too wired to lay down. Walking back from Team's office, which was now housed in the old station security HQ, I eschewed the trams and the cabs. I stumbled along, stopping occasionally when I got fatigued. I even went out of my way a little and bought a coffee from the kiosk. Actually, I bought two. One I drank, one I poured out and left in the notch in the wall. No message, just a tiny gesture in honor of a man who deserved much better. The apartment still didn't seem inviting. Somehow I knew that if I went home, I'd fall asleep, and I was afraid of sleep. I needed a shower and change, though, so I bought a new flight suit, underwear, and some of Quan's cheap toiletries at a market stall then went to the rec center where the smackball court was located. The showers there were blissfully empty, and no one else made use of them the whole time. It was like a gift. After this, I went to R&D. Despite the delays, and against all expectations, the renovators had somehow finished most of their work on the offices the previous day. These were all big and glassy now, and smelt like fresh paint. The team weaponry kids were still moving everything over from our partition space in the back when I walked in. I got the sort of greetings I had earned, with muttered hellos and how are yous and insolent glances. Gaza was seeing to something across the bay, but spotted me up there. She waved, and we met in the center of the big room. Detained again, they said, and now released again? Ijak, what's going on? Did it have anything to do with what happened in Spoke Plaza? The rumor mill is working hard. 
I need to know. No, you really don't, I said stiffly. Ask me nothing, Gaz. It's all classified, and I don't want to think about it anyway. Team investigators came by and questioned everyone about you and your hobbits, just like last time. Well, maybe a little less than last time, but when I asked what was going on, they said what you just did. Okay, fine, whatever, but I need you totally involved here. We're ready to ramp things up and everyone has to be available and committed. I just looked at her in shock. I couldn't help it. I've been the most productive member of this sub-D since I came aboard, and you know it. Don't go playing the tyrant now. That's Jake's job. There are things in play I can't talk about, just like there are aspects of this project here that you can't talk about. We all have our jobs to do. I just have more than one right now. Stop being so defensive. I'm not lording it over you. I'm just saying that with these offices finished now and every group having at least worked out a game plan, time, resources, and personnel will all be strained. If you have other priorities, you need to get a handle on them or the pressure will bury you. I'm trying, Gaz. That's all I can say. I sighed then, feeling remorseful. I'm sorry for biting your head off. Yes, Spoke Plaza was involved, and no, it wasn't pretty. I'm utterly exhausted, but I can't sit still. I'll help move equipment or run errands. I don't care. I have no idea what I'll be doing tomorrow, or if you'll have to talk to team again, or if I'll be detained in the future. I won't even speculate. Make of it what you will, but I just want to stay busy. I'm worried about you, she confessed at last, voice down. They said there are spies aboard. They say a lot of things. I say that weaponry has a job to do, and I want to continue to help. For now. While I can. And during those times when I can't, for whatever reason, rest assured that I'll be wishing I was here. That made her chuckle, and she just shook her head. The dark woman then turned to go back to whatever it was she'd been up to before, but then remembered something and stopped. Oh, and Seven Newellen, Floy, as you call her, was also questioned about you today. She's not here now, but she said for you to call her when you get in. Apparently she knew you would be getting in, unlike the rest of us. I take it you already have her number? She was smiling, but I just showed her my vinegar face and walked off. I actually didn't have Floyd's number and had to look it up in the directory. She picked up right away. In my eye view, she looked excited and relieved and spoke very quickly. Ejak, are you all right? I heard what happened. Some of it anyway. Was it later on after... well... I'm fine, but... You know you can't ask me anything, right? Yes, it was explained. I don't like this. I thought you were, I don't know, a civilian, a gunner, whatever. Oh, I am, I insisted, feeling the artificial weight of this artificial world on my head, like a silent pronouncement of guilt and failure. It's what got me into this. Trust me when I say that what I'm doing is not what I was expecting when I first came here. It all just evolved. 
I don't know how, even looking back on it. Did you get home okay? This, I added, without skipping a beat. Desperate for something else to think about, something other than Brandon Erska stopping a bursting pellet with his face. Yes, I did, and I... I need to thank you. I was having a bad night. I made a mistake. <laughs> it seems so piddling now, so childish compared to what you've gone through. No! I shouted into the jewelry on my clenched fist, and people all around the open bay turned to look. It isn't. It wasn't. If we could compare mistakes, you'd feel a whole lot better about last night, believe me. Whatever it was that put you in that place, it was far better and more benign than anything I managed to do. You're really not that bad. I'm sorry. She had gone through a spectrum of visible emotions as I spoke. Anger over being yelled at. Curiosity over hinted at secrets. Sympathy for a devil. It, it's my fault, Floy. I... Stop, Ejok. Just stop. You can't talk about it and I can't listen. I really don't think you're to blame. I don't know any details, but I still believe that. The man who helped me last night despite myself is too careful. He doesn't make mistakes like that. I had a reasoned argument, but couldn't verbalize it. I was standing in front of the entire department and felt like all eyes were on me. That was either arrogance, paranoia, or the truth. And I couldn't tell the difference anymore. I'm at work, I said after some length. I'll be here for the rest of the shift. They're getting it cleared up. I would come in, but I can't do anything down there just yet. I'm not allowed to do any of the physical labor, regulations. And while we're talking about can'ts, um... You know we can't really, uh, hang out anymore, right? Is that what it was? She laughed like a mule, despite her attempt at a grave face. Shut up! You know what I mean! It's against the rules. Fraternizing. At this point, Floy, I think I've earned a certain latitude. I doubt you'd hear any crap about it, but, of course, whatever you think is best, boss. Her face pinched up, looking as though she was mitigating the joke with some real and real sudden irritation. Now you do need to shut up. I'm going to grab some sleep, but I'll be in for first shift. If you can get off a few minutes early, we'll start testing the limits of your newfound latitude and grab some breakfast. See you then, I agreed, and even managed a smile. Not a big one. Not even a happy one, especially. But it was sincere, and that gave it value. Indeed, that made it priceless. Call me unobservant, but I'd never noticed that R&D had burgundy-colored utility drones as well as red ones. Until I was actively looking and saw them side by side, I couldn't even tell the difference. Just trying this out was scary. 
I'd needed to scoot in front of one as it was passing through the security door. Traffic sensors on both sides recorded the comings and goings of the machines, and the human guards made note of it too. That door was a pinch point, though, and traffic jams right there weren't unusual. One or two people with bulky stuff would try to go one way, while a drone carrying an even bigger load tried to go the other. A robot was programmed to give way to people, but if there were more machines behind it, or more impatient pedestrians trying to get through, you ended up with a snarl and a lot of cursing. I waited for a moment when no other people were right there, made sure to be holding a box in my hand, then dashed in the way of a wine-colored drone just as it was approaching the doorway. I spoke the magic words, but it only attempted to get out of my way. When I backed up a step, it moved forward, burdened with what looked like office furniture. I tried again, but it still ignored me. After a second dance of equal frustration and nervousness with another machine of the same hue, I finally looked up to see an actual red one waiting in line. I wasn't mad at myself because that's what practice was for. When the time came to actually move the parts, it absolutely had to go right. A couple of rounds of silliness and confusion only cost me time and sweat, and I had plenty of sweat. By now, there were people waiting to get through on both sides of the door, so I let the drone move on, acting all bumbling and annoyed by technology, which wasn't far off the mark. And wouldn't you know, I never saw another red one leaving the department for the rest of the shift. R&D had every color of such-like machines, and the red ones, now that I looked closely, were dedicated to transporting large electronic systems that needed extra stabilization or an onboard power supply for backup. They were generally reserved for specific tasks then, since none of the others had those same features. Actually, it's possible that a couple of red ones did get used later that day, but I was distracted by actual work thereafter. Up in the new weaponry office, we had a heated discussion about energy cell arrangements for some military-grade DEW plasma lances. Energy weapons were in the spec from team, and they'd even generalized the location for them on port and starboard. That was all well and good, but modern fighter craft needed more than just that, and we were weighing all our options. I'd never worked with these kinds of lances before, but several of the young Turks had. That put me squarely in the back seat, until we came across some hard space considerations in the containment drawers for the weapons, as detailed in Hull Design's latest schematic. Either the lances had to be scrapped and something else put in there, which would have been really irritating because the subsidiary systems would also have to go and we'd only just gotten that stuff to fit, or we had to double down and actually make this happen. These kids had been trained in the fundamentals, but had never done hands-on repair or design work to any great extent. One of the many relative beauties of big-budget military systems was their modularity. In a crisis, Swaptronics was the fastest and easiest way to handle pretty much any system fault. Got a relay short? Don't hunt down the offending part, just change out the entire module. 
Have a dead crunch card? Forget replacing it. It's buried inside a processing core. Just swap out the entire core for a new one. This kind of problem-solving was a wonder to behold under amber and red alerts, providing a level of speed and robustness no civilian commercial outfit could hope to match. Or want to, since it was also appallingly expensive and wasteful, and required a sizable percentage of cargo tonnage to be dedicated to backups of backups of backups. But military and civilian vessels operated under very different mandates and had, therefore, very different, often diametrically opposed, priorities. This also meant that the people who operated them had different approaches to implementing hardware and software solutions. Everyone looked at me like I was standing on a ball juggling Indian clubs when I suggested that we strip the lances apart, power cells and all, and string the components out in a line rather than try and force them as whole units into undersized containment drawers. There was room for all the pieces on port and starboard if we expanded into some dead spaces created by a recent redesign of the armor plating and firewall mounts. Said spaces didn't amount to much and would likely not survive another HD design draft unless someone claimed them for active use. I proposed that we do so. Lance repairs would be impossible, one fresh-faced boy in a uniform pronounced contemptuously. How could you get at them with the fuel system in place? It sits right on top. With an access panel that we get HD to put right here, I countered, pointing to a rectangular face in the firewall schematic that floated above the table. It glowed brightly when I touched it and pulsed like I was poking them all in the eye. That's unsafe. You can't have a break in the firewall. Not commonly, no, but I have seen it in commercial ship designs before. There must be specs on record they can pull from for reference. Hull design's already working on full-scale pieces, another put in dismissively. Please, they can't make changes to a couple of printed polymer mock-ups. Probably they could, the same kid conceded, yet while shaking her head. But they won't. I heard HD is way behind schedule, and their offs are really cranky with it. We shouldn't piss them off. We have to get along. No, we don't, I lectured, because they looked like they were still in class, sitting here in this bright new office, wearing what could have passed for school uniforms. Their mixed faces displayed boredom, impatience, and confusion. We have to produce. It isn't our job to make their job easy. You want plasma lances? This will get you plasma lances. You want to be all friendly and unobtrusive? Forget your lances and put another system that'll fit in the available space. And deal with all the backtracking and redesigning you'll have to do. You're looking at weeks of work for us versus an hour or two for them, not counting extrusion time for the models. They have the discretion to turn us down flat, Gaza pointed out though her tone wasn't querulous. That's why we don't go to them directly. We go to Jake. We tell him HD pushed out a firewall that's going to set weaponry back by weeks. No, uh, make it months. Then you tell him that they laughed at us when we brought it up. He hates those guys as it is, so this'll get him shouting. 
Her eyes got big at that, surprise and amusement in evidence. The others all chortled, too, because CPM06 Jacob Hammerhool had made himself into a legend, of sorts, among this new crop of people, just the way he had with the old one. Temper tantrums down in the bay, pointless posturing and dressing down episodes in his office, and loud diatribes in closed-door meetings that everyone in R&D heard about anyway. To be honest, I admitted, what he actually does around here is a mystery to me. But even so, Jake's an excellent bulldog. Make him think that one of the sub-Ds he's responsible for is being slighted in some way, and he'll be barking and snapping at HD until they capitulate, which they'll probably do immediately since it's a little thing that will shut him up. Then we thank and praise our great hero for a job well done, and he'll be locked and loaded for the next time. They liked it. They still didn't like me, but they liked having enemies. People to hold up in ridicule and to set themselves against. I turned a corner, apparently, because I no longer filled that place for them. The enemy was now outside, across the bay. It was in another office down the row. It held the rank of superior officer in some other sub-department. Joining hands around the campfire and singing songs about butterflies and unity wasn't going to get the job done, and it looked like we were all clear on that point at last. Gaza thanked me for this later on when we were alone, going so far as to suggest that I put in for promotion along the admin track. I think you'd make an excellent manager. I burst out with a genuine howl of mirth which seemed to both amuse and frustrate her at the same time. It took a moment to compose myself. I'm just thinking of your career, eh, Jack? I used to have one before this place, I replied, grinning and feeling quite grateful to her suddenly, because I desperately needed the laugh. Now I don't know what I have, or what I'm even doing. You're making a difference here. Some days you make all the difference. Listen, my husband and I are hosting a little get-together tomorrow mid-shift after work. I'd like to invite you. There are some people you should meet. I have smackball practice, I countered, caught out in the open and ducking for cover. Come late, then. It's an informal thing, not even a party. Seven Newellen will be there. She added, without a smirk, but with a definite sparkle. I don't think I agreed, but I know I didn't exactly decline, because Gaza left then, sounding like she fully expected to see me. I'm lined up! Over here, over here! Fanny, hold starboard for the follow-up, okay? What? What was the penalty? Ejack, make the pitch! Smack it! Literally, go for the smack! Barney, come on! Listen, the lightning favors fast pitches and quick follow-ons. You all right over there? No way! How did you catch that? Heads in the game, people.
I'm ready for delivery, Dieter said. I need more time. How much time? I've been putting in 16-hour days up here, Ejok. Then take a break. I can't talk now, but I'll call later and explain. In my grainy little eye view, he looked pissed, not stoned or hungover. I didn't like that. It was something to worry about and something to think about, and I couldn't afford those now, not with so many people around that I didn't know, but who seemed to know me somehow. People who were talking. Important people. Because that was the sort who were attending this cocktail party, which is what it was despite Gaza's dismissive description. And it was looking pretty formal, too. The guests wore uniforms, nice suits, and tasteful dresses. All I'd done after practice was shower and put on a clean jumpsuit. They drank sensibly. They spoke and laughed quietly. They chatted in easy little groups. Everyone acted like all this was important and meaningless at the same time. Floy was in her dress grays across the living room with a collection of other team officers. We exchanged looks, but she was pinned down for a while. CPSO 7 Kolya, I heard at my elbow, and I automatically turned. May I introduce Ejok Dos Santos, one of my best engineers? I shook the man's hand, but smirked at Gaza. That's generous. I'm hearing very good things about weaponry, Seven Collier stated. He was a squat, bald man with mocha skin and a watery smile. He struck me as someone important to the project since I'd never heard of him before, and he shouldn't have heard anything about weaponry, good or bad. It's the leadership, I replied, casting doughy eyes at Gaz and sighing theatrically. Every day's an inspiration. She pushed me with a laugh, and I laughed, and Seven Collier laughed. It was just so funny. Dr. Mator tells me you're from the Alliance. I am, and she tells me I should sign on to a long-term contract. Sounds like good advice. Any decisions in that regard? His moist smile sat on his face like an old-time photograph that had been pasted there. No. I returned that grin, feeling the awkwardness mount. His smile eventually faded into something like confusion, but I held on to mine, bright, cheerful. Whatever he was, this man was no friend, and I wanted him to know that I knew that. Well, I hope you do consider it, Mr. DeSantos. Pleasure meeting you. And you. He nodded congenially, then sailed on to less cryptic waters. Gaza still held a slight smile of her own, but had crinkled brows. What was that? Who knows? Strange friends you have. I'm beginning to see that, she put in, her expression morphing into slight exasperation. You aren't going to be a complete knothead tonight, are you? I haven't decided. I'll have a drink and think about it. Help yourself, she replied, gesturing to the liquor fountain she'd laid in for the gathering. I found out later that it was actually her husband, Beaumond, 
who had arranged for the barbot as well as everything else. He was self-organized and had the available time to manage such things. A thin, dark guy with a pencil-thin mustache and a quiet, solicitous manner, he struck me as both forgettable and indispensable at the same time. He was an ancient Terran history scholar, and as such had no business aboard Mylag Vernier, except that if he wasn't here, his wife wouldn't be either, and they definitely wanted her here. He taught elective and credit-free classes in a training facility somewhere on station, occasionally to only a single student at a time. He also gave regular public lectures in one of the big meeting halls, covering such things as the Etruscans, the Phoenicians, and the cultural cross-pollination between various Bronze Age tribes of northern Africa. He'd yet to fill the place, he confessed with a shy smile, but had a few regulars. Understanding none of it, I stood with a polite little group that listened to him describe his work here. I don't think I was alone in my puzzlement, but people nodded anyway and asked for clarification about this or that. I think he understood we were just here for Gaza's sake, but if so, he was cool with it. I met CPM-06 this, and CPS-05 that, and this civilian contractor, and that retired team officer now working as a consultant. I shook hands and spoke in banalities like everyone else, and it was a good performance for a while, if I do say so myself. There were sidelong glances, though. There were confidential mutterings and quick whisperings here and there. There were people who looked at me frankly, assessingly, and it was entirely too familiar for comfort. Because if someone was of a mind to make use of the new unknown element, it could turn out badly. It could go to very dark places. People could get hurt, killed. Memories could be made that couldn't be unmade, no matter how hard you tried. No matter the sweet injury or horrific convalescence, the recollections could still be there, a fly in the ointment of a person's life. This easy gentility could make a man do things and become things he couldn't even imagine. Even if it was as benign and boring as it appeared, it was certainly more than it appeared. And, of course, they all knew each other. That, too, was a recipe for suffering. When the oil drums and crowd guns came out and when the people were shouting in the streets in the companionways. A man could lose his head that way, or half of it at least, in an alley, accompanied by a liar. It might only be a matter of time before... Are you all right, Djok? Gaza's voice tore me from the moment, and I almost hugged her for it. You look terrified, she said quietly, very concerned. I... kind of... Uh, I'm sorry, Th this was a mistake. There's nothing to be afraid of here. Look, they're just people, friends and colleagues, nothing more. I know, it's not that. Have a seat, I'll get you that drink. She started to move off, but I stopped her. Just water, 
Please, I'm going into work later. One night off isn't possible for you. God, you need to relax. I didn't come here to relax! I shot back with a loud enough hiss that a couple of well-heeled participants of the night's sedate festivities looked my way. I can't do this. Not again. Do what? It's just a small party. It is? With some important people you need me to meet? People who have plans, maybe? Priorities I can't understand? Where is this coming from? There's nothing going on behind the scenes. At least not here. Not tonight. Her look of concern never faltered, but she caught someone's glance across the room and made a motion. I figured it was Beaumont, but a familiar form in a dress uniform was at my side at a moment. What's wrong? Floy asked quietly. I don't know. I think it's a panic attack. He was staring out at the room and just started shaking. I did not, I argued, because I wasn't going to have that be anything like true tonight. Or any night. What is it? Seven Newellen asked quietly, kneeling next to me, as I sat on... Uh, what was I sitting on? A coffee table. I know you're okay with parties, she pursued in a whisper. If Gaz found that tidbit at all noteworthy, she didn't make a sign. Actually, I'm not. I can't talk about it. Come on, you've seen me at my worst. Legally, I mean, I I can't talk about it. And I really didn't expect to feel... <sighs> wow. I'm... I'm so sorry. Gaza, I'm truly mortified. I... <sighs> or I would be if I knew anyone. You know us. We know you. I bit my tongue. The planet Barlow and Spoke Plaza were both too close at that moment to open up any more. Because I didn't know what would come out. <laughs> I hadn't had a spell like this in years. But years have no meaning for some things, while people have no other way to bridge them. Except to live. To keep on living them. To breathe. In... Out. In. Out. There, my two bosses said together, not laughing at their chorus, because it wasn't funny. Nothing here was funny. Nothing in the past was funny. And that made me chuckle. Better? Floy offered a thin smile with her mouth but a brighter one with her eyes. Maybe a little bourbon with that water? I asked Gaz, and she looked pleased, going off to get it. Whatever it is you did before coming here, the seven commented, sitting on the table next to me, it was more than gunnery. She upset a shallow bowl of puffed nuts next to her, but didn't seem to care. She watched me closely. And a whole lot less, I conceded. How is someone supposed to respond to that? You say things without any context. You can't elaborate. You can't explain. Most of all, you can't share. Or won't. Don't stop. You're on a roll. She closed her eyes as if to gather her thoughts, or maybe her patience. 
I don't know why I even care. What are you to me? Alien. You're an alien creature. I've made first contact. I come in peace. I highly doubt that, she replied, sounding, for all the world, rather heartsick. There's no peace around you. I'd been watching her up until now, but that final jab had found my gut, and I dropped my eyes. I wanted to speak up and deny it, to render her speechless with brilliant rhetoric, and to prove her argument false. But I didn't know how, or why, or why it would matter to anyone. I have a niece, I offered lobbing out a non-sequitur to clear the arena. Except that Syndra really did come to my mind at that moment, and darn it, I could share if I wanted to. This career military officer was wrong. Okay, the Seven replied, clearly wondering over the context. Your brother's child? No, she, or rather I, was kind of... Adopted into her family, it's complicated. That wasn't in your file. How old is she? 24 now. She's getting married in two years. Her family goes in for long engagements. Well, that's nice. Is that nice? I don't know yet. It may very well be, but I haven't met the guy. I really hope I like him when I do. Why? What happens if you don't? He might have to go away. She sat quietly then, looking at me, eyebrows knit in concentration. You're going to kill him if you don't like him? Well, that's the worst-case scenario, but... And I shrugged. By like him, you mean what, exactly? My eyes were on the carpet. It was a nice carpet, plush and muted. Management definitely got the better apartments on station. I have to be convinced he can keep her safe. Can't she keep herself safe? She hasn't always, and everyone needs backup now and then. He'll be someone who can provide it, or he'll be gone. What does your niece think about this? Doesn't she get a say? That is her say. It's her idea. And it's a good one. Floyine watched me with something like growing apprehension. At least that's how I interpreted those widening eyes. What are you two so afraid of? I thought about that for a moment, then swept the room with a lazy hand. I meant far more and she caught on instantly. You can't control the whole galaxy, Ejok. <laughs> you just watch me. We were silent then. People were spying out of the corners of eyes. Her fellow officers were surveilling. Or maybe not. Maybe no one cared. I reached over to grab one of the puffed nuts Floy had spilled, my face moving by hers for just a moment. She inhaled quickly the smallest of gasps, as if 
catching her breath from an unexpected sprint. We locked eyes as we moved, and hers were like deep, brown points of attention and fear. A single centimeter, I could have touched her. I could have brushed her face with my nose, my lips. But I didn't. She was a blur. Everything was a blur. It was all out of focus. Growing up back in Jardin, those few days on the surface of Barlow, this place, here and now, they were just moments. Moments in my life. I sat back and popped the nut into my mouth. She was flushed, staring straight ahead with what almost looked like shock. Gaza, who'd been waylaid for a time by some stuffed shirt or other, returned with my drink just then. Her eyes went wide when she saw Floy. Not you too? Is it catching? The seven shook her head, as if to negate our host's concern, or maybe shake away the cobwebs, the snares, the moment itself. I think so. We'll call it Ejocitis. Discretion, our hostess muttered, setting the drink in my hand. Someone nearby called her away. I said nothing, and neither did Floy, nor did she move. I did, but only to sip my cocktail. I met your roommate, she said at last. She spoke quietly, but matter-of-factly. A fair imitation of it, anyway. Barney? Yes. To say the least, he was surprised when I came out of your room. Even more so when he saw I was alone. He never mentioned it. Because he's a nice guy. Your friend. Is he? Is he my friend? <laughs> I'm not sure what that is. You're surrounded by them, but you don't know what they are, she queried. I still straight ahead. I think you're confused, I replied. Not about this. I realize that you're involved in things that can't be discussed, new situations and past ones. Fine. But that's not what it's about with you. Oh? Whatever those things are, they don't define you. It's the other way around. You do them because of who you are. And is it you who defines the glow paint and stiletto shoes? Sorry we never found the other one, by the way. Head and eyes unmoved, staring across the room, she frowned. No, you don't. No cheap shots. No deflections. I get to do this. I claim that right. You're terrified of walls. Of places of being glued to anything or anyone. You'll make me blush. You're smart and funny and very annoying. You're a jerk. And I'll lay odds. A hero. But mostly a jerk, I confirmed. And her frown finally flipped over. You're that one thing no one ever expects, Ejok. Whatever the situation is, whatever solution is needed, that's you. 
That's what you become. Gaza had been chicly cheap with the booze. Big crystal rocks glass, a splash of fine liquor, a dash of water. I finished it off in one toss. Philosophy, I accused. Impossible. I'm a soldier. They're not mutually exclusive. I suppose. People are funny that way. Yeah. Funny I don't find them funny. She furrowed her brow at that one, eyes finally rolling over to glare at me, though she kept her head facing forward. It was such a silly look I burst out laughing, and so did Floy, for a moment. Then she closed her eyes. Oh, I think I'm in trouble. Are we in trouble? It was just a whisper. Powerful. Frightened and frightening all at once. But no. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It was just a moment in my life. I didn't answer her. Or maybe I did. Because I got up then and went searching for another drink. You have been listening to Risk Analysis, a science fiction novel written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. You can also check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com and sign up for my newsletter, where you'll find exclusive content and early releases. This story is copyright 2016 by the author and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called i by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The theme for Risk Analysis is called The Inventor by Zach Beaver and is available on SoundCloud.com. Risk Analysis is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person, living or dead, nor any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care.